My father is here today, but he was away in Florida all last week. I don't know if you realize this or not, but Indiana can get kind of cold in February. Uh, so he and my mom got away for a little bit. He went to a conference. They celebrated her birthday, and they played some golf, too. Uh, so it was a pretty good trip. Now, as I've said, we're continuing our Let's Talk About Jesus series Uh, And as uh, we pointed out last week, as we got back into things, we are at the beginning of the end. Uh, We're at the beginning of the end of our journey through the Gospel of Matthew, which of course means that we are at the beginning of the end of the life of Jesus. Uh, He is in Jerusalem. He knows he doesn't have much time left, and he wants to celebrate the Passover feast with his disciples. And that's where we find ourselves this morning. Uh, In fact, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26, Verses 17 through 30. That's what we're going to read in just a moment, and I want everyone to be ready for that. Now, we're going to talk about a couple of things this morning, but what we're really going to focus on, what we're really going to spend uh, most of the time looking at is the Lord's Supper, and that's what happens in this part of uh, Matthew's Gospel. I mentioned earlier, if you were here for the welcome, you heard this. If you were not, uh, I want to make sure everyone knows Uh, that you should have a communion container with you. It's this little hourglass-shaped container with uh, bread on one side and juice on the other. Don't get the two of them confused. Uh, That could cause problems, uh, depending on what color outfit you have on today. But um, the reason I want everyone to have one of these in our service is because in a little bit, we're going to take communion together as a church. And we're going to do it as one body. I'm going to read some scripture. It's going to be a really moving, uh, memorable experience. We really enjoyed it uh, last night at the Saturday night service, and I know that it's going to be uh, really beneficial for everyone here as well. But you can just kind of uh, keep that in mind and and sort of set it aside for now, uh, because I'll I'll walk everyone through that when it's time to open it up and when it's time to actually partake. Uh, What I want to do before we do anything else is actually just read our passage. So uh, if you're able I would invite everyone to please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read Matthew chapter 26, verses 17 through 30, and you can follow along as I read aloud. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, Go into the city to a certain man and tell him, The teacher says, My appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve, and while they were eating, he said, I tell tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him, one after the other, surely not I, Lord. Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. Jesus answered, Yes, it is you. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Thank you. You may be seated. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. 
Now, even though, as I said, we are primarily focusing on what comes at the end of this passage when Jesus gives a new meaning to the bread and the wine that he and the disciples eat and drink, I'm not going to just ignore everything that happens up to that point. Because everything that happens helps set the stage, not just for the Lord's Supper, but of course for everything that comes later on in the Gospel of Matthew as well. Our passage lets us know that it is the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the disciples are asking Jesus where they are going to celebrate the Passover feast. And so real quick, we can kind of ask this question here. Um, What exactly is going on? Is it the Feast of Unleavened Bread? Is it the Passover feast? Well, the answer is that it's both. The Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they combined to make one eight-day-long celebration that actually began with the Passover meal. And um, I'll get into the the specifics of why it's called Passover and why it's called the Feast of Unleavened Bread later on. Uh, And while on paper, these are two separate feasts, uh, because they celebrate, they're celebrated so closely together, because they deal with the same event in the history of Israel, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was often used as kind of a comprehensive term to describe this entire thing, including the Passover. And there were even times, there were even occasions when the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they were used interchangeably to talk about this eight-day feast. And one of the things that I want to make sure you notice as we begin to work our way through this passage is the reality of God's sovereignty on display here. And really it's on display in this interchange between Jesus and his disciples. And this is key because if you were here last week, then you know that the sovereignty of God, the fact that God is in control of everything is something that we talked about. And we see it again right here in this little story. I say that because of the way that Jesus guides the events of the night. You know, first of all, he doesn't just tell the disciples, okay, this is where we're going to celebrate the Passover. He doesn't just, you know, I don't know, back then, he doesn't just give them the address, give them the street name or something like that and say, everybody be here at six o'clock. We're going to start the Passover as soon as everybody arrives. He doesn't do any of that. Instead, he sends some disciples into the city and he gives them these kind of strange instructions about how to organize everything. Why is that? Well, remember, Judas has agreed to betray Jesus. And because of that, he's looking for an opportunity to do this. And if Judas knows ahead of time, well in advance when and where the Passover meal will take place, it would be a great opportunity for him to tell the religious leaders this and then they could set a trap for Jesus. Because as much as they want to arrest Jesus, they understand that he's a very popular person right now and they don't want to do anything in a a public setting. They don't want to do anything that might cause a scene. They don't want to do anything where there's a crowd around and things might not go their way. And so this would have been a perfect opportunity for them to do just that. But that's not how God planned for things to happen. And so Jesus takes steps to make sure that no one really knows where they're going to be until they arrive. We know from other gospel accounts that he sends Peter and John into the city of Jerusalem, uh, which is where the meal had to take place. And he tells them to look for a man carrying a pitcher of water, which again, on its face, doesn't seem like a whole lot to go on. But when we remember that 
at this time in history, men were not the ones who went to get the water. That changes things. For some reason, this was a woman's job. And so even at a time like Passover and even in a city like Jerusalem, for a man to be walking around carrying a pitcher of water, it would have made him uh, stand out. It would have made him much easier to spot. Peter and John find the man. And of course, everything is just like Jesus said it would be. And all the preparations for the Passover take place. And then when we get to verse 20, uh, Matthew kind of jumps ahead in time because they're already uh, together in the upper room, Jesus and his disciples. Now, if you're a student of the Bible, if you've read the Gospels before, you know that a lot of things happen when they're together right now. Uh, you know, one of the things that happens is, is that the apostles, they get into another argument about which of them is the greatest, which of them is the best. You know that Jesus teaches all of them and all of us, of course, a lesson on humility because he washes their feet. Matthew, in his telling of events, doesn't cover these things, though. And to be honest, because of what we're focusing on this morning, I'm not going to talk about them at all either. And so what I want to challenge you to do or what I want to... I don't know, ask you to do is to find some time this week and to read uh, each of the gospel accounts of the Passover feast. Because if you do that, you'll get a much clearer, a much more complete picture of everything that happened on that night. One of the things that Matthew does talk about, though, that I believe is worth pointing out comes in verse 21. Jesus says these words, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. One of you will betray me. Now, I think this is worth pausing at quickly before we really get into the Lord's Supper. And the reason I say that is because this is the first time that Jesus has told his disciples that one of them will betray him. Now, we know that he's talked to them a number of times about his death. That's something that we actually discussed in last week's message. But this is the first time that he mentions betrayal. And of course, it really hits hard with his followers because he doesn't just say it in sort of a general way. He doesn't just say, hey, someone that we've come across over the past three years of journeying and teaching together, someone has grown disillusioned and, and, and they're going to betray me, so I just want to prepare everyone for that. That's not what he says. In the middle of the meal, he looks at them and he says, one of you will betray me. And this is important, not just because it's an interesting little bit of trivia, but because it sets the stage for the Lord's Supper. And the reason I say that is because this is Jesus' way of getting rid of Judas. We know from the text, once he tells them that one of them will betray him, a couple of things happen. The first one is that they all get very sad. And the second thing is that they all go around and ask Jesus this question, Surely not I, Lord... And obviously, we don't know exactly how this happened, but I get the impression that it just sort of moved its way around the room, one apostle after the other. And when it got to Judas, he says the same thing that everyone else said, basically. He says, surely not I, Rabbi. But Jesus answers him and says, yes, it is you. And Matthew, in his uh, recounting of events, he just sort of leaves it at that. But again, we know when we read other Gospels that a couple of things happen. From uh, John's Gospel specifically, we know that John tells us uh, that Satan entered into Judas and that Judas left the meal at this point. Once Jesus 
let Judas know that he knew what he was up to, what he was all about, what was going to happen, everything gets kicked into the next gear. Satan enters Judas and Judas leaves. And why is this important? Well, now that Judas is gone, it's just Jesus and his closest followers. It's just Jesus and the 11 in the upper room. And this is where he institutes what we know of today as the Lord's Supper. You see, and I love the fact that Jesus shows great love and great patience for all of his apostles uh, in their entire time together. Uh, You know, even though he always knew uh, how they would fail him at different times, and even though he always knew what Judas would do, he still taught them all. He still traveled with them all. He still washed all of their feet. But when it comes to this momentous event, he made sure that Judas was not around for it. This was something that Jesus shares only with the 11 who are left. And this is what we're going to spend the rest of our time talking about this morning. And just like when we read in our passage that Jesus and the apostles, they took communion together and then they sang a hymn together, we're going to end the message today by taking communion together and singing a hymn. But before we do that, I want to spend some time uh, talking to you about communion. And I want us to look at three things that should help us understand and appreciate. And honestly, uh, they should help us, uh, they should, you know, affect the way that we participate in this each week in our services. So if you like to take notes, you can write this down next to number one in your handout. It's past importance. It's past importance. We can't truly appreciate or understand the significance of what Jesus is is doing in the upper room and what you and I do today without realizing how it all started. Now, for those of you who have grown up in the church, you probably know that the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it takes us all the way back to the book of Exodus. It takes us all the way back to the people of Israel being freed from slavery in Egypt. The Feast of Unleavened Bread got its name from the type of bread that the Israelites were told to make and eat. That was bread without yeast. And while there is a practical reason for this, uh, this was the bread that they were supposed to take with them as they left quickly from Egypt, so it had to be made fast, there is also a symbolic aspect of this as well. Uh, When you study the Bible, one of the interesting things that you see in a number of places is is this idea of leaven or yeast uh, being used as a way to illustrate the influence that a person or a group of people have. And it's used this way because if you've ever made bread before or because if you know how to make bread or just know how it's done, uh, it doesn't take much yeast when placed with fresh dough to ferment and cause the whole thing to rise. A little bit of influence can go a long way. And this is symbolic because in Exodus, God is telling the people basically, you know, now that he is setting them free, now that he is bringing them out of Egypt, they need to leave their old life behind. And it's more than just him telling them that they're going to leave their life of slavery behind. He's also telling them that they need to leave their life that has been surrounded by the influence of a pagan society behind. He wants them to be different. 
And this isn't just an illustration that we see in the Old Testament as well. If you remember, back in Matthew chapter 16, verse 6, Jesus says these words to his disciples. He says, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Because a little bit of influence goes a long way. Paul reminds us of this again in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33. He says, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Now, this is not an excuse to lock yourself away from people, but it is a warning. It is a warning because a little bit of influence can go a long way. So that's the bread. With each piece, they were to remember the way that they had fled Egypt, fled their old life, and left everything behind. That's part of its past importance. The other significant event that they looked back on was the lamb that was killed and the blood of that lamb that was painted across the door frames of their homes, the homes of the Israelites. This was the original Passover event. The Israelites, they were enslaved, they were being killed, and God sent Moses to tell Pharaoh to let them go. And this is obviously the Cliff Notes version of things this morning. Moses goes to Pharaoh and he tells him to let the people go. And Pharaoh, he does not agree. He turns down the offer. He says no. And so God sends plague after plague after plague on the country of Egypt, on the people of Egypt, because of the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. And what we see is is just Egypt basically being put through the ringer at this point in history because he refuses to do what Moses says. And so after all of this, God comes to Moses and he says, I am going to bring judgment on Egypt. And this is different than the plagues that have come before. And I'm going to explain a little bit more about this incredible and significant event in just a moment. Uh, But I want to actually read from Exodus chapter 12 for you this morning. You don't have to turn there. You can just follow along as I read. Because God is telling Moses what the people have to do, how the families, how they have to take a lamb and how they have to slaughter that lamb and what they have to do so that they can be safe. This is what we see starting in Exodus 12, verse 7. He says, Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lamb. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or cooked in water, but roast it over the fire, head, legs, and inner parts. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Well, why is this such a significant event? That might seem like an odd question because it might seem like there's an obvious answer to that. But I want you to really think about this. Why is it so significant that God is bringing his judgment on the entire land of Egypt? Well, think about this. Have you ever wondered why God told the Israelites they had to do anything at all? 
And I'm serious. I mean, God knows who the Israelites are. God knows who the Egyptians are. He knows what's been going on. Why doesn't God just tell Moses, you know, Moses, the Egyptians, they have enslaved your people. They have mistreated you. They have oppressed you. And so tonight, I want you and all of the Israelites to watch what I'm going to do to them. That's not what happens, though. You see, God knows that because he is holy, because he is perfect, because he is just, that if he passes through the land of Egypt bringing justice, even though the Israelites are his people, even though the Israelites are the ones enslaved that he is setting free, he knows that they cannot stand before his judgment. They cannot stand before his perfection. Moses, later in the chapter, even tells his people, do not come out of your homes until morning. And this is a strict rule because he understands that if they go out from under the door frames where the blood of the lamb is painted, they will not be safe. And it doesn't matter who they are. They will not be safe. And so because God is holy and because he knows that even his own people cannot pass the test of his judgment, he makes a provision for them. And he tells Moses that if they want to live, they must take a lamb and it must die. And if they have faith in me and if they do what I say, if they put the blood on the door frames of their homes, then when God comes, when justice comes, he will see that death has already occurred at that house. And he will pass over and move on and they will be saved. And as we get ready to move into the second point of what I want us to focus on when we think about it, when we talk about communion, this is what you need to understand. This is what we all need to understand is that even back in the book of Exodus, even back in the Old Testament, what we see, what we read is God telling his people, God telling the people that my judgment is coming. And even though you're my chosen people, that's not enough to save you. And even though you worship me, that's not enough to save you. The only thing that can save you right now is if something dies in your place. As if there is a substitute. And that's what he gave them in Exodus. And of course, that's where we see the significance of the blood of the lamb. Because the Israelites, they showed faith in God and they obeyed God and, and God's provision and they killed the lamb and they painted their door frames with this blood and God's judgment passed over them. Number two, write this down. It's present purpose. That's, that's what the Passover feast was all about. That's how everything began. And now let's talk about the importance that it has for you and me today. I'm going to read again from Matthew 26, just verses 26 through 30. It says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So what is Jesus doing here? Jesus is celebrating the last Passover. He's celebrating the last Passover. And we just read from Exodus about the first Passover. And this is an event 
a, a feast, a tradition that predates almost everything in the history of Israel. It's older than all other festivals, older than the priesthood, older than the tabernacle, than the law, all of that. And now what Jesus does is bring everything to a close. No one needs to celebrate the Passover ever again, not like Jesus and his disciples did that night. Because now when we take the bread and the juice, just like we will in a moment, we don't remember the Israelites fleeing Egypt. And we don't remember the lamb's blood on the door frames of the houses that kept the angel of death away. What we remember is Jesus and his body that was cut and broken open, and his blood that was poured out, not to pacify God's judgment for just one night, like the blood of the lamb did in Exodus, but to take away our sins so that we could live with God for all eternity. You see, Jesus took the bread, which originally symbolized the Israelites' separation from their old lives in Egypt, and he transformed it into a representation of his own body sacrificed for the salvation of all mankind. And as the disciples drank the wine, Jesus said, this is my blood of the covenant. And what was originally symbolized, uh, the, the blood that had been used on the door frames by the Israelites now represents the blood of the new covenant and, and where the old blood that was shed spared the people of Israel the judgment of God in Egypt. Like I said, for just one night, this new blood, the blood of Jesus, not only spares believers God's judgment for all eternity, but it also reconciles us to him. You see, because of what Jesus did on the cross, God doesn't just not punish us. Because of what Jesus did, we are welcomed by God into a loving relationship with him. You see, when you and I take communion this morning, and when you and I take communion from here on out, we need to remember what Jesus did, because as incredible as the story in Exodus is, the truth is that it pales in comparison to what Jesus did for us on the cross. No longer is it just pacifying God's judgment for one moment in history. Now it is satisfying God's judgment for all of eternity. No longer is it forcing us to take a lamb and, and, and kill it in our place. Now it is Jesus volunteering to die for us. No longer is it something experienced by just a small few in history. Now it is something available to all people all over the world. No longer is it a time when people remember how close they came to the judgment of God. Now it is the moment when God let loose the opportunity for salvation for everyone. That's the present purpose of communion. That's what you and I participate in and remember when we take the bread and the juice each week here in our services. And as great as that is, there's even more. Write this down next to number three if you're taking notes. It's future hope. It's future hope. Jesus says something at the end uh, that may not seem like much, but I think it's worth noticing. He says, I, I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Okay, well, what's the significance of these words? Well, they remind us that as important 
to, uh, as important as it is to remember the death of Jesus on the cross when we take communion, uh, as crucial as that is, we also have an opportunity to look forward and to think about the return of Jesus as well. And I'm not talking about us remembering the fact that Jesus resurrected from the dead. I'm talking about uh, the fact that we can remember that he is coming back. There is going to be a second coming and the hope that we can all have because of that. See, when you and I take communion, we have hope in our future. And that hope doesn't only come from what Jesus did on the cross. It also comes from the promise of his that he will return with a new heaven and the new earth. The promise of no more tears, the promise of a new body and new life, free from sin and pain and death. This is the future hope that we look toward when we remember what Jesus did on the cross for us. If you want to, you can go ahead and kind of uh, hold on to and get ready with your little containers. There's just a few more quick things that I'm going to talk about, but I want everybody to uh, kind of prepare themselves. Uh, remember, this is an open communion. If you're here with us uh, this morning, it's not just for the members of Mount Pleasant. Anyone here who has accepted Jesus as their Savior, confessed, repented, and been baptized, you're welcome to participate in this with us. But one of the things that we see in the Bible when we talk about communion, when we read about communion, is the reality that it's no small thing to do this. And we're instructed to take communion in a worthy manner. And so as we get ready to do this, I want you to hold on to this in your hand. Don't do anything with it just yet. And I want you to listen as I share with you three really quick things that we can do to try and make sure we take communion in a worthy manner. The first one is this. When we take communion, we need to look back. Look back. Jesus tells us to do this in remembrance of him. We need to remember that he died. We need to remember how he died. And we need to remember why he died. And this is important because it is the death of Jesus that saves us. Listen, it's not the teachings of Jesus that saves us. It's not the miracles of Jesus that saves us. As wonderful as those things are, and I hope you understand what I mean when I'm saying this. But it is his death. It is his substitutionary death on the cross that saves us. And so we look back. The next thing that we do is we look inside. We look inside. We need to examine ourselves, examine our hearts when we take communion. We need to ask God to forgive us of our sins. We need to forgive others their sins against us. We need to let go of any bitterness, any uh, resentfulness, any, anything like that that we have in our hearts. We can't bring anything with us to communion and think that it doesn't matter. As best as we can, we need to get rid of everything that stands between us and God. And the next thing that I say that we need to do is we need to look out. And here's what I mean when I say that. We need to remember that we do this, we celebrate this with the entire church. The first Passover event that we read about in Exodus, that was something that families did together in their homes. When we read about the last Passover with Jesus and his disciples, it was something that he and this group of friends did. And so when you and I take communion, we need to remember that while, yes, it is an extremely personal thing, it is also something that we do as a church together. 
And we can celebrate that. We can remember that. We can love one another in that. Brian, you can go ahead and come out and get ready. So here's what I want us to do. I'm going to pray. And then I'm going to give everyone here a moment of silence, a moment to prepare themselves. And then I'm going to read from Matthew's gospel again, and we're all going to take the bread together. And then I'm going to read from Matthew's gospel, and we're all going to take the juice together. And so let's prepare ourselves to do this as best we can in a worthy manner. Would you pray with me? God, thank you so much for everything that we read about in your word. Thank you for the way that you love us. Thank you for the fact that you do not just love us with words, but you love us with actions. And as we prepare to take communion this morning as a church, I pray that you would prepare our hearts because this is a big deal. Because what Jesus did that night in that room and what he did the next day on the cross changed everything. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.